uh, evil person who despises God. The Israelites did not think of the Pharisees that way at all. The Pharisees were people who voluntarily took on the extra requirements of the priesthood without becoming priests themselves uh, and actually kept God's law more closely than they had to. They actually went out of their way to live a more holy life. They cared deeply about Israel. They seemed to have cared deeply about the truth. The problem is uh, that they care about it for the wrong reasons, and they see their own law-keeping as the way uh, to achieve at least some sort of status before God, um, as well as seeing their own Israelite heritage as something that gives them a special status before God. And so Jesus answered to Nicodemus, you, you must be born again. The you part would have been as puzzling as the being born again. One of the aspects Nicodemus would have heard is you, a Jew, a Pharisee, a keeper of the law, need to be reborn spiritually. And I imagine Nicodemus must have been thinking, Jesus, don't, you know I'm a Pharisee, right? You know I've kept the law. I'm an Israelite. I'm, I'm not a Gentile. What are you talking about? I need to be born again. Uh, Jesus continues to answer, and he continues to say things that had to be absolutely puzzling, as well as saying you must be born a second time or born from above. Uh, he says other things. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Pastor Nathaniel pointed out last time was that Nicodemus starts out saying, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know. We figured this out. What does Jesus say in verse 11? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So as we look at the things Jesus says to Nicodemus, they are not soft and fluffy. Uh, rather, they are a bit jarring and certainly would have had Nicodemus off balance. Uh, and one of the things we need to be careful of with a text like John 3, where uh, there are people in this room who may have known John 3 for more than 70 years, I'm guessing. Uh, for some of us, less than that, but it's one of the first verses that we learn as a child, it's one of the few verses that I'd say many non-Christians already know. People who, are, who don't even claim to be Christian uh, are familiar with John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. One of the difficulties it, of coming to a text like this is we are so familiar with it that we can gloss over the difficulty of what's being said. John is writing his gospel long after most of the Bible or most of the New Testament has been finished. Uh, the, the other three gospels have been around for decades. And John comes along and says, I have more to say. And John 3 
is a new thing that comes along. Now, I'm not saying that it disagrees with the other Gospels or anything, but it is only in the Gospel of John that we get the story of Nicodemus. And as with many of the other things in John, changing water into wine, the woman at the well, the I am statements, John gives us a lot to think about. And it's easy to read these things and just read right past them because we've heard it so many times. But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, Nicodemus, you say you know, but you don't. I, on the other hand, speak of what I know. And more than that, I speak to you right now of earthly things and you don't get it. How then can I speak of heavenly things? But when I do speak about heavenly things, what do we see in our text? Uh, It is nobody else who understands except the one who has come from heaven. Uh, Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here Jesus is making a claim, Nicodemus, I've come from heaven, from God, to talk to you. You can imagine what Nicodemus was thinking at that point. He said, we know you're a teacher come from God. Jesus says, I'm the son of man come from heaven. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering uh, something from my college days. And Uh, There was a philosopher that we studied in my introduction to philosophy class that really just made me angry. As a Christian, I read him, and I was uh, ready to just tear him out of the philosophy textbook and go on with my life. The philosopher's name was David Hume. He was a philosopher during the Enlightenment in the 1700s. He was very influential in uh, the existentialist philosophers who came later, uh, very, uh, you name any philosopher that came after him, and he, he, was, uh, he was an important guy. Uh, but David Hume, thinking about uh, the world, thinking about the senses, thinking about what can we know, perhaps thinking on what Rene Descartes said, that I think, therefore I am, uh, and you can't know much else with certainty. Uh, David Hume suggested that we wrongly conclude things based on our observation. That all of you assume that if I was to drop this water, it would fall onto the ground. David Hume said, you have no idea what will happen if I drop that. You can make an educated guess based on what you've seen that uh, it will continue to fall, that gravity will work the same as, as it has before, but Let's be honest. How do we know that gravity wasn't set up so that it would work fine up until uh, April 19, 2015, and that after that, you drop things and they float up to the ceiling? As a college student, I wanted to say, well, we just know that. Let's go on to something else. Uh, uh, 
Now, from this, David Hume said that there's a lot that we observe that we can't understand fully that we accept on faith. And one of the other things he argued that also made me angry was that miracles almost certainly didn't occur. And then even if they had, we, we can't take from these miracles that that would necessarily mean that there is a God or that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I didn't like David Hume for a long time. Uh, and then one day I came to understand that at least one level he is right. That I do take by faith that if I was to drop this water on the ground that the uni- laws of the universe work the same today as they did yesterday or that they will tomorrow uh, the same as today. I can't travel into the future. I can't predict with absolute certainty uh, what will happen. Nor do I really need to. Uh, I can uh, proceed by faith that based on what I've observed, gravity will continue working. But more importantly, when it comes to Jesus and knowing Jesus, there's a sense in which we can't know for certain that Jesus is who he claims to be or that the, the word of God is what it claims to be. Now, some of you are saying, oh, man, where did they get this guy? Pastor Nathaniel, come back quickly. Uh, here's what I mean. We cannot enter into heaven and verify the word of God. I cannot enter into the mind of God. I'm stuck in this spot, in this body, with these senses. What does Jesus say? Nicodemus, I have come from heaven, and I speak of what I know. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I have experience of these things. I am not speaking to you as someone who doesn't know what he's talking about or who has just kind of reasoned out some principles. I speak to you as the one who came down from heaven. I speak to you of what I know. Now in this, Jesus is making a strong pull for Nicodemus to put his faith in him. That he's saying, Nicodemus, I bring you the truth. You came to me thinking you knew things. I'm telling you things are different. You need to be born again. You need to believe in me. And so Jesus continues to say things that had to be troubling. Uh, Oh, a year or so, or so ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, Pastor Todd was doing a short series on a few of the signs of, uh, of the Gospel of John. I think it was then we talked about, um, I talked with the children about uh, the snake. And when you think snake in the Bible, who do you think? And unless you're staring at John 3, you think of Satan. 
You think of Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, telling him he needs to be born again, telling him that he has come down from heaven with knowledge. And then he says, just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This point, I sort of wonder if Peter was in the room or, or if John was in the room and they were thinking, is that the best example you can think of, Jesus? Uh, why not pick the ram? How about the ram from, you know, the one that was stuck in the thicket with, with Abraham and Isaac? That's a nice animal. Uh, how, how, about, how about a lamb? Uh, maybe even a lion. Jesus says, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Now, what's going on here? In Numbers 20, the people of Israel grew impatient. Students who have had me for uh, Old Testament, you'll remember things like this. The Israelites get impatient about every other paragraph Uh, And as you read, one of the things that comes through, by the way, is that God is not primarily a God of wrath with them. He's so patient because they blow it over and over again. And this is not the first time this has happened, but they speak up against God. And in Numbers 20, verse 5, they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food, which, by the way, is manna, which is special food from God that tasted like honey. Uh, Verse 6, then God sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people get the message. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from him, from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord says to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Nicodemus just like the serpent was lifted up by Moses, who is, by the way, the hero of every Israelite and certainly of the Pharisees. Moses lifted up the serpent. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. You need to be born again. You need to look to the Son of Man. You, an Israelite, you, someone who tries to keep the law, you need to look to to Jesus and know that I am the answer to the question you didn't even ask. Now, one of the the other striking things is that verse 16 is present at all. 
which, by the way, um, a note for uh, especially for you elementary teachers who use the blue NIV, uh, if you have that one. I don't know if it's made its way all the way down to the lower campus. But uh, the newest version of the NIV, the 2011, if you were looking at that, you would notice that the quotation marks in your Bible stop at verse 15. Uh, there's a debate in scholarship. Um, some say Jesus stops talking at verse 12. Some say 13. Quite a few say Jesus stops talking at verse 15, and that for God so loved the world is not Jesus speaking, but John giving his commentary. Now, in itself, on one hand, if that is the case, uh, still the word of God. Uh, The black letters in the Bible are not less important than the red letters. Uh, The words of John are not less the word of God than the words of Jesus. But in this case... Uh, knowing that punctuation in your Bible is a decision of the editors. The ancient Greek didn't have punctuation at all. Uh, And they spelled pretty much however they wanted to. That must have been great. Uh, Even though that's the case, I'm going to say to you, I'm convinced this is Jesus still speaking, that there's no clear indicator that Jesus has stopped speaking, and that more than that, it seems to fit with his address to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you need to look to the Son of Man. You need to look to me, Jesus, as the one who's bringing salvation, but not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. Jesus is here not saying that, uh, as some want to interpret it, for God so loved each individual person in the world so that He could save each individual person in the world. What this is saying is God loved the world. He didn't just love Israel. Jesus easily could have said, for God so loved the people of Israel that he sent his one and only son. He said the world. Thinking about it more, it would have been so very fair for the story have read, to have read like this. For God so detested the world because of its wickedness that he sent his only son to bring a fiery sword to judge the nations for their wickedness and to judge you for the ways that you have fallen short, O oh, wicked people. It doesn't say that. For God so loved the world. that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's something we readily say, and I think on paper we readily believe it. And yet how often do we find ourselves thinking, does God even care? And as many of us in the room are Presbyterians, as many have studied the Bible a lot, even if you're not Presbyterian. Uh, We know that God is love. We know that God sent Jesus to die for us, and yet the evil one will whisper in our ear that God God died to save regular people, not people like you. 
God died to save the world, but hmm, you're not worthy. And even if we don't think this way, as we write out the logical understanding of the gospel, the reality is that our own hearts, our own insecurities, speak to us a different message that we, we are not worth it, that, that my sins are, are different than regular per- people's sins, which they're not, by the way. No sin has seized you that is not common to all. No temptation has seized you that is not common to all. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I was working in Boston, I spent my first year after seminary at Gordon-Conwell uh, working for a Greek church. It was not a Greek Orthodox church. It was one of the few Greek Presbyterian churches, uh, I think you can say, in the world. Uh, there were eight of them in the U.S. and I think about 32 in Greece, and they are a smaller minority in Greece than... Uh, than 1%. It was a tough job. I was out in Boston by myself. Uh, And I remember one day being absolutely beat down and marching through the parking lot to my car to drive off and go do something because I don't even remember what was bothering me, but I was just sick of it all. One of the Greek men, who didn't speak much English, walked up to me, smiling, ear to ear. If I didn't say it out loud, uh, in my heart, something like this came out, what do you want? I think I probably just said hi. And he said to me something that pierced my heart, and I remember to this day. He looked at me, and he smiled ear to ear, and he said, Hello. God loves you. He didn't say much else, and I don't think I stayed and talked to him uh, very long. But I can tell you that as I got behind the wheel of my little car, it hit me. And it was a powerful thing to hear somebody say to me, God loves you. In a moment where I did not feel lovable at all, where I felt like, I just want to get out of here. Beloved, children of God. The Lord of heaven and earth sent his son not to condemn you, but to save you. And often we think that God the Father stood by perhaps disapprovingly saying, yeah, Jesus, you can go save him, but Ah, I'm not really sure I want to. Often we think of 
At least I think we do. I think we think of God the Father as begrudgingly saving us, as, okay, I'll put up with you, but I don't have to like it. And certainly there is much in us that needs changing. There is much in us that is not lovely. But the message is that God the Father loved you and sent Jesus who willingly died for you. And that just like as the Israelites looked up to this bronze serpent and were cured of snake bite, so too, if you look to Jesus, you will be saved from everything that makes you unlovely, from every sin you've ever committed or will commit. And you will be given life eternal. At this point, I imagine Nicodemus saying, I just wanted to ask you a question about uh, something little. Verse 18 goes on, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Who in this conversation did not believe in Jesus as the Son of God? This point, Nicodemus doesn't. This is one of those times when grammar matters a lot. Because Jesus could have said, whoever has not believed in him, already stands condemned. That is, you had your chance, Nicodemus. Trinity Presbyterian, you had your chance. It's not what he says. And if you're someone sitting here today who doesn't know Jesus personally, the door is open. Jesus is not telling Nicodemus that The door is shut. What he's saying is, there's only one way to God, which is a bold claim. And do the the logic, Nicodemus, who is talking to Jesus, is being excluded. The Pharisees are being excluded because they are not following Jesus at this point. But... The chance is still there, and the chance is there for us. Understanding what Jesus says is only the first step. But like Nicodemus, we need to come to terms with what it is that Jesus is saying, that we are a people who need new birth, that we need to be remade, that we need to look to Jesus and receive life, Because on our own, it's not enough. And in our day, we say the same types of things, if not exactly the same, in the same words that Nicodemus uses. If you ask many people, why should God let you into heaven? Well, because I'm a pretty good person. Because I try hard. And because God is a loving God. And it's true that God is a loving God. But it's not true that we are good people. 
I'm not saying we're all as evil as we could be, but when you put us up against the law of God and the holiness of God, we need to be remade. One of the great things we get to see about Nicodemus is that he must have listened. Because Nicodemus' name shows up twice more in the New Testament. One is in John 7, 50 to 51, where the Pharisees are ready to uh, condemn Jesus. And, uh, and Nicodemus says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he says? And then again, Nicodemus shows up. And while I can't say with absolute certainty that Nicodemus internalized the message and became a Christian, it doesn't say that in the text. John 19.39 is a great verse. After Jesus had died, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This tells us, A, Nicodemus had some money. He was well off. And B, when Jesus died, he brought the most honorable gift he could think of that cost him quite a lot. Of course, Jesus wouldn't need it. He didn't stay dead. Brothers and sisters, we have the same choice before us that Nicodemus did. We can come to Jesus and love the light, or we can stay in the darkness and reject Jesus. The word of God calls us to believe and promises that if you do believe, you will have, as crazy as it sounds, as crazy as it must have sounded to Nicodemus, that by believing in Jesus, we can have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,